And as I mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> still getting over that cold. <clears throat> I, I just took a big swig of ginger ale. It was like not a, not a good way to real spaghetti Western behavior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, well, I tell the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown them? They crown them, but they aren't who we thought they were. And we let them on the streets. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very... Very hot. Open fire! Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis, and with me today are Ryan Saunders and Eric Marsh. Excellent. For those who don't know, Joining us, perhaps for the first time, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of your hosts selects a topic, a theme for the week, and the other two hosts are tasked with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, challenge the topic, address the topic, and we have it out right here in The Gauntlet studios it was my turn to pick this week i was up and as i mentioned at the end of our episode last week we had watched a film i had selected a film for our topic on oil that starred one of my favorite actors john maria volonte and uh you know it got me in the mood for some more Italian food, and, and Volonte was certainly in a lot of very memorable spaghetti westerns. So it kind of got me hankering for a little a little spaghetti. I think also partly because uh, Marsh can attest to this as well. We, we both just finished a very long quarter at uh, DePaul University where we teach, and uh, my brain was a little fried. And for me... Spaghetti Westerns have always been a source of my cinematic comfort food. So I think in a sort of selfish way, I, I just wanted uh, something that I could easily digest, something tasty, something simple. And I've often gone to Spaghetti Westerns when I need just that. So here we are, Spaghetti Westerns. Uh, the interesting thing about this week is that, you know, the gauntlet will be what the gauntlet is. And those <laughs> spaghetti westerns are a very broad subgenre of Western cinema. And there's so many great films and so many directors. Accidentally, somehow, this became a focus on Antonio Margariti. So you both, you both brought films directed by the great Antonio Margariti, a.k.a. Anthony Dawson, to the table. And uh, I think that they they both uh, represent, to me, 
certain pleasures found in spaghetti westerns. One of the films I think is 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 quite good and and I think could kind of stand up there with some of the other great spaghetti westerns I've seen. The other one uh, is is a different kind of fun altogether found in spaghetti westerns. Uh, it speaks to the constant sort of hybridization that this subgenre uh, would go through over the years. They're both incredibly unique films, and I think they also share a lot in common, and perhaps that's simply because of the fact that they have the same director but they're they're very interesting films i hadn't seen either of them before so was very stoked for our trip to margaritiville wasting away <laughs> in margaritiville so uh without further ado let's introduce our films uh ryan why don't you kick things off for us what did you bring to the table Sure. Well, when I was looking for different spaghetti westerns, I was taking my typical approach and go for an alternate look at a spaghetti western and thinking about the the breadth of spaghetti westerns available and how they were often treading in different areas of, you know, film genre and already the fact that spaghettis are unique objects in the sense that they're Italian productions filmed in Spain about American and Mexican history, quote unquote. Um, I thought, let's sort of aestheticize this even further. And I came across a film from 1975 called Take a Hard Ride, which it itself is sort of a spaghetti western black exploitation hybrid featuring many stars from you know the the boom of the black exploitation cycle so the film stars jim brown as pike when we meet Pike at the beginning of the film, he's working for Dana Andrews, who plays a cattle rancher named Morgan. They have just completed a big job, and they have a ton of money that they want to bring back to Sonora, Mexico, to develop sort of a utopian society where they can control the world as they see it and how they want to you know, live their lives together in a commune with, with other people. But... Dana Andrews, he, he's not feeling too hot, though. His old age is creeping up to him. That hot, hot desert sun is um, really causing a lot of his, his health issues to fire up, and he, he suffers either from sort of, sort of stomach congestion or a heart attack, and, and he passes on with his parting wish telling Pike, make sure you get this money down to Mexico. I am entrusting you with it, and that is your quest. Eventually, joining him on his quest is... Fred Williamson, who plays Tyree. Tyree is a bit of a dandy. He wears a, a very colorful little vest. He's always, you know, fully decked out in a suit. The kind of guy who cheats at a poker game because he's got bags of snakes at the ready just to kind of cause chaos. Um, but the two of them eventually collide and team up on their path. But all the while, Lee Van Cleef is following hot on their heels. Lee Van Cleef, in typical spaghetti western fashion, is playing a bounty hunter and one who is a rather ruthless bounty hunter. He is one that even lawmen say, like, you're a, a man who kills for merely $200. And he's, you know, Lee Van Cleef believes a contract's a contract. And then to him, that's justice. So that's essentially how the rest of the film plays out. It's a cat and mouse chase. Eventually along the way, uh, in this kind of 
kind of ties in with Marsha's pick a little bit, but Jim Kelly, the great martial arts star that you see in Enter the Dragon, joins the crew, oddly enough playing um, an indigenous man out there in the West. But it is, it's just the three of them sort of charting their path down, down to Mexico while Lee Van Cleef is, is hot on their heels. It's, you know, I, I had a lot of fun. It's shot in the Canary Islands. It looks really unique. It certainly doesn't look like anything in America, and that's one of the really fun things about <laughs> spaghetti westerns in the way that they're heightening the the way the landscape reacts to the film simply because we have spaces that are so outside of our vision of the West that it becomes everything becomes operatic in a way. And and this film, though very like plainly lit and relying entirely on natural lighting for the photography, it does have some really unique visual stylings. Sometimes extremely <laughs> ineffective or at least just entirely like spatially confusing. There are a few key moments that uh, I think we'll have some fun trying to parse out what on earth was <laughs> happening at all. But yeah, it's, it's fun. So I'm excited to talk about Take a Hard Ride. Beautiful. Marsh. How about you? What did you bring to the table? Well, you buried the lead, Andy. One of the gauntlet origin stories, of course, is that, you know, the first time we met damn near 20 years ago was in a Spaghetti Westerns class. And I remember thinking, who's this loudmouth, you know? <laughs> uh, but, you know, we all know how it ended up. A we took a hard ride. We took a hard ride to a wonderful <laughs> friendship. And here we are many, many years later. Uh, so, yeah, you know. I'm a fan of the classics. I'm a, I'm a Sergio Corbucci guy all the way, you know. Um, so for this one, I was like Ryan thinking, yeah, you know, uh, maybe maybe find something I hadn't seen. Find one off the sort of beaten path, as it were. And when he selected, he told me uh, he was picking the hybrid black exploitation spaghetti western. I was digging around myself and, and found one that was equally a sort of uh, puzzling or, you know, potentially delightful hybrid. Uh, so I chose La Dove Non batte il sole, aka El Karate, El Colt, El Impostor, aka The Stranger and the Gunfighter, aka Blood Money from 1974. This is a international co-production. It is the brainchild of Italian super producer Carlo Ponti and Hong Kong super producer Run Run Shaw. And that's sort of the, the high concept thing going on here. It is a kung fu spaghetti western. So as the film opens, we are introduced to a thief, Dakota, played by, you guessed it, Lee Van Cleef. And Lee Van Cleef is a thief, and he's breaking into the safe of a wealthy Chinese immigrant in California, Wang. And according to rumors and gossip, Wang has lots of wealth that he brought over with him from China. And so Dakota breaks into the safe only to find four pictures of sexy women and a cookie. <laughs> and while he's breaking into this safe, 
Uh, he uses some dynamite, which accidentally kills Wang himself, who notices that the bank is being robbed and runs <laughs> over there only to uh, meet an inglorious demise. And Dakota is thrown in jail. Meanwhile, we cut to China, where we are introduced to Wang's nephew, Ho Chang, when all of the sudden, the warlord and his minions burst in through the gates and take him away. Because it turns out Uncle Wang has the warlord's money. And with the murder slash accidental death of him, the warlord has come to his nephew seeking justice slash Return on investment. Return on investment, (laughs) yes, exactly. And so you can imagine where it's going from here. Ho goes to the United States to find out what happened to his uncle and to find the treasure that his uncle had with him, if there even is one at all. I almost disagree a little bit when you say, and you can guess where it goes from there. At no point when I popped this thing on did I think that this movie was going to be a a series of scenes of men studying women's butts, looking for (laughs) signatures that like give them clues onto finding the money. That's true, and I've in fact come up with a uh, an alternate another alternate title uh, in the spirit, uh, in you know riffing on Boddicker. I was calling this film in my head four asses from now oh that's beautiful (laughs) right that's good yeah there you go i should say ho is played by the great hong kong martial artist lo lee so shaw brothers putting one of their stars in this film along with an american star to uh you know bring the, the the fun dynamic you know long before Uh, Shanghai Noon, you know, we've got Ho and Dakota, and they eventually link up and they go in search of this treasure, and boy, it is, yes, a a wacky ride. (laughs) It is a a bawdy kind of comic film as much as it's uh, a classic spaghetti western and a kung fu film all wrapped in one truly kind of bizarre package, and we've also got, and we'll get into this, But uh, I I do want to bring up right away how much, you know, Italian cinema we've we've been in recently because there's a a crazy Deacon character that I'm excited to talk about who is played by the leader of the satanic cult from all the colors of the dark. It's the same actor. Uh, So (laughs) just wanted to call out that gauntlet connect right there. It would have been real galaxy brain if the the psychiatrist from both of those Giallo films (laughs) was a psychiatrist in either of these spaghettis. Unfortunately, they didn't have uh, Freud in the Old West. Yeah. There was no use for him, you know? Or at least like a crack doctor selling like elixirs. (laughs) Sure, sure. Yeah, snake oil guy. Yeah. Yeah, more more proctology than psychology going on in uh, blood money. Uh, Yes, thank you. Uh, And as I think you 
you you you said there's so many when when I think people think of spaghetti westerns, obviously there's there's the big ones and you know the 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 more I think uh, well respected uh, directors critically and and uh, commercially, you know the Leones, the Corbucci's, even Oluccio Fulci uh, had quite a few very good spaghetti westerns in them. So I definitely right off the bat really appreciated you two. Uh, digging deep and pulling in some some spaghetti westerns that I had never seen as well, and also two very unique ones in their in their own right. And you know, I, I alluded to this in my uh, intro a little bit, and and you know, I think we we've already been sort of digging digging it up here. But I think that's one of the things that that I really appreciate about spaghetti westerns is their. Uh, constant sort of fusion. There's a lot of fusion of, of different things going on. There's a lot of creativity there that often to me makes spaghetti westerns just so fun that it isn't what you expect. Obviously, there are spaghetti westerns that, you know, have become something of almost like sort of self-parody because of mm-hmm. uh, how many notes they hit that that are very, very similar to other spaghetti westerns. But these two... Boy, oh boy, and and you know even Ryan, uh, even as you were pointing out with with Blood Money, even beyond the novelty of it being a kung fu spaghetti western, uh, yes, I I had no idea what sights were in store, what pleasures were in store. <laughs> but yeah, I think both of these films do share quite a lot in common, you know. And I would say right off the bat, one thing for me that that I think I've often appreciated about spaghetti westerns that I think sort of differentiate them a little bit from a lot of American Westerns, or or at least a thing that I've really come to to find and notice in a lot of Spaghetti Westerns over the years is that often at the heart of their films, uh, we really have stories about friendship. We have different people coming together, you know, opposites will attract often in spaghetti westerns they're they're a really good almost prototype for like the buddy comedy craze of the 80s and 90s in hollywood and eventually uh when we would get shanghai noon which to me i don't know if you both felt this but like man shanghai noon really feels like like a remake of this like there's so many similarities between the two of them there's no doubt about it yeah i think it's interesting too on on that note that you know it's one of the fun things to me about you know looking at any genre over time is yeah like what happens to it right and we're well into this cycle in the mid 70s right so that's when like the real loopy shit starts getting made you know and it's also of course like at that time in in the 70s of increased globalization in markets and screens mm-hmm. and, and circulation and stuff like that on the tail end of the black exploitation cycle as well as being on the the sort of you know middle tail end of uh, spaghettis like yeah these are bonkers ideas and, and in fact I, I I read an interview with uh, Margaretti where the interviewer is like hey you were like the first guy to to do you know kung fu westerns and he went uh it was just ponty's idea you know <laughs> like just it was just the producer he had a he wanted to you know bring these markets together mm-hmm. in the international 
co-production, you know? So it starts from, yeah, that extremely vulgar exploitation kernel in the mind of a producer. And then this guy's like, yeah, someone had to direct it. Like, I had a blast. You yeah. Know? <laughs> and it's also, of course, just coming off of the fact that Westerns at this point were like slowly going out of vogue. You know, they had a yes. resurgence there with the initial revisionist Westerns. And that provided interest for a lot of people who had typically written them off or weren't interested in the classic Hollywood Western. But even already at this point in the mid 70s, that fever is is starting to fade. And these are both unique examples of taking successful genres and trying to apply them within the, the Western framework just to see how many people they could get out to the show. Yeah. I mean, to that point, a book that really like further propelled me into my uh, love of spaghetti Westerns is the one and only spaghetti Western expert, Alex Cox's book, 10,000 Ways to Die. And in his book, I mean, which is a, is a great primer and a, and a great resource for anybody that's interested in spaghetti westerns and diving even more deeply than just the more well-known films of like a Leone or Corbucci. The, the book has a lot of really great breakdowns of films that I'd never heard of. And it, the book turned me on to that. But even the point I'm trying to make here to, to your point with his book is that you know, he's got like all these years broken down in the book and he's going through all these films, you know, that came out 65, 66. And then like the final chapter is simply the seventies. And Alex <laughs> in his book is basically just like, and then the seventies rolled around and there aren't too many good spaghetti Westerns, you know? And he, he kind of makes the, that point, you know, where he's like, they were running out of ideas and, you know, uh, it's just this sort of gradual decline from from like the, the high watermark of a 68 or a 69, you know. Um, but that being said, uh, and and I, I certainly love Alex Cox, but I, I pulled the book out and I went there and I tried to find neither of these films were in his book. And I think uh -oh. if he had included them, he might have been able to say, you know, the 70s weren't all a sort of like flyover decade for the spaghetti western so yeah i mean he just needs to take the eddie muller approach where he's like constantly on a quest to try and unearth more films that fit in his his framework you know and just adding a new chapter every couple of years like muller does for the noir city book yeah, i mean both of these films would provide a really interesting case study chapter all on its own Oh, yeah. And, you know, from what I understand, I don't know, Marsh, could you tell me, because uh, you, you might know a little bit more about this, um, but the Shaw brothers particularly, like, were, were trying to, like, start to, like, reach out and do more of these because Golden Harvest had already kind of broken the the that barrier and was, you know— they, they felt like they were starting to lag behind, so they, they started to try to create these in other areas, too. I mean, these— to take nothing away from Margariti, feel very much like producers' films, you know? Yes. That these are the idea of someone kind of overseeing a production more than necessarily being into the nitty-gritty. And I think, like, part of that shows in how much seems to be recycled between these two films. There's a lot of ideas, characters, props, costumes <laughs> that show up in both of these films. And the same third act villain, uh, same actor yeah. in both films, big this, big, this big fat guy with a beard shows up 
in a quote abandoned location in the case of take a hard ride there's the abandoned mine where the film concludes and then there's the abandoned mission and in both cases yeah there's this you know scene chewing uh loud mouth fat guy yeah ricardo palacios he was a spanish actor in like just about every spaghetti western you've ever seen he was in like all of leone's films often with like a bit part but but yeah he not only does the same actor show up playing basically the same character did you notice he's wearing what looks to me like the exact same oh, costume. Yeah. Did you notice that? Yeah, it's probably the only thing they had that could fit him, so they had to <laughs> use it on both productions. <laughs> just <laughs> yeah, just show up with the same outfit, buddy. No problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We also have a Gatling gun prominently featured yes. in both films. Yep, as Django well. callback, of course. You know, you just gotta pull one out. Yes. And both of them have really amusing Lee Van Cleef cold opens, too. I'm not even sure which one I prefer. Take the Hard Ride has an amusing one where he's playing a harmonica very sinisterly outside of a church. And the 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 pastor is, you know, gives him this like shady look, you know, suggesting that he stop. And then he's irritating people as they're attending the the, the mass. And then, you know, Lee Van Cleef claims a bounty. He, he shoots a man down. But then the... The Lee Van Cleef cold open in Blood Money is is probably better. It's so funny. He appears from underneath the train as it pulls into a station. I mean, the way I read it, it was like a little fuzzy, but I imagined he was just like hanging on to the like the metal grating underneath the yeah. train. And it's nice because he comes out through the steam and like Lee Van Cleef stands up and arrives. And then the conductor tries to charge him for the fare, but then he, he disappears again into, into the steam. And it, it, it seemed to me like a very appropriate appearance and I guess disappearance for a film that's then going to be like a martial arts uh, you know a martial arts movie more or less you know like I was thinking of that kind of like uh, mystical quality that characters can have where they can just sort of Chinese black magic yeah yeah you know you know the film also like takes uh, I guess just to sort of focus on one for a moment like Mm -hmm. the film then sort of subverts his character in kind of an interesting way because typically when Lee Van Cleef shows up in a spaghetti Western, I think you expect him to be more of the character that you, you see in take a hard ride, this murderous cutthroat nihilistic, the bad, uh, bounty killer. Right. Yeah. And here immediately, you know, he's, he's, he's on a more comedic note, you know, he's down Mm -hmm. on his luck He's not using his gun to get him through situations. He's using his wits and his brain. And then we transition immediately from that great introduction of his character to, uh, I thought, a very funny scene of a safe cracking sort of like bank robbery because he goes in there and he's, of course, like on a mission to find the treasure inside this safe. And it is, I will, I will point out as well, a very amusing safe because it isn't just like one door he no. gets through, right? It's layered. Yeah. And it sort of like builds. Uh, the only thing he finds in each like door when he opens it is just a picture of a woman, you know, a picture of a sort of scantily clad woman. But it isn't just a picture. We then get an interesting journey into these pictures where we really start to get 
uh, a bizarre scenario that plays yeah, out. Yeah, I, you know, I went into this thing having a certain idea of like how it might play out, especially since I had watched Take a Hard Ride first. I was like, okay, so it's treading in black exploitation waters, but it's maybe a little bit more of a gimmick and it's just focusing on other stuff. But then this film is so much more zany and comedic, like right out of the gate because of all of this. Just Lee Van Cleef shuffling through a series of photos of butts, like old timey, you know, like lithograph butts. And then it cross cutting with Wang as he's has all of these women like as so we cut from butt to the woman. And Wang himself is studying these butts. So each of these women uh, have a piece of the puzzle that the film is going to uh, journey into tattooed on their rear ends. Uh, And so we see like each of these pictures lay out, you know, each piece of this riddle that will come to be solved in one way or another. And to to make it as clear uh, to the international audience as possible, the various mistresses of Wang are all different nationalities. There's the Italian mistress, the Russian mistress, the American mistress, and the Chinese mistress, of course. So we can kind of distinguish uh, what's going on. But I was very disoriented by all the asses and by all the dissolving (laughs) going on in the beginning. And I was like, are these flashbacks? Is this happening at the same time? I'm like so confused. But then I figured it out, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty quickly. But because we're not really sure what Wang is doing in these flashbacks, he, you know, he has like one of those like eyepiece magnifiers. Yeah, something looking at diamonds. Yeah, and yeah. It, and he's like looking at asses, and you're like, this guy, what? This guy's a freak, you yeah, know? Like, what yeah. is he up to? It's not explained to us at the time, like what these tattoos are all about. But yes, he's he's inspecting those asses very very closely. Yeah, I mean, I guess in hindsight, it's even more confusing then because what what is he exactly doing when he's inspecting? Is he just making sure the tattoos are still there? Like wouldn't he just know what they are? He already put the code and the tattoos down. Like yeah. what is <laughs> I was thinking the same thing, but then I just sort of like let it go. You let know? it flo- because float another, away, yeah. Again, like, you know, once you start getting those thoughts in your head, like why is he inspecting the tattoo? You know, wouldn't it have made more sense if we were watching him do the tattoos, you know? And then of course the, the, the follow-up thought being, well, who took those pictures, right? Because in the in yeah. the <laughs> in the scenes that we're in, we only see those two, you know, and then it, it like just suddenly like goes into a still of like the scene that we just saw take place. And I was wondering, like, who was standing there with an old timey camera? Right. You know? <laughs> so let those thoughts just just go. Let them drift away. You know, because really, uh, that's not. Uh, what's most important here. Yeah, there's almost even a gag that's drawing attention to what he's doing where he's laying in bed with one of them and then suddenly feels he just has the impetus to check the butt again. Um, And he has a moment of panic where he thinks the tattoo is gone. And then he realizes he's looking at the backside of a mandolin uh, because it's like a similar skin tone as her butt. And then he has to like take that out of the blankets, realizing her butt's not made of wood. Um, yeah, certainly some broad comedy to yes. to open the the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we that's our that's our like journey into the picture, really. And then, <laughs> as Mar said, suddenly we're we're in China. 
Uh, and for anyone who's seen a Wuxia film or any of the like Shaw Brothers martial arts films, like this is also like ringing bells of of so many other films you've seen before. So we're introduced to the hero and he's taking part in some ceremony where he's basically being given like the responsibility to cu- to carry Kung Fu like on his shoulders. Like he mm-hmm. is our hero, the honorable one, uh, the the best of the best. And as this ceremony is taking place, suddenly all these guys in silk robes and hats, the magistrates men, the warlords men just burst in. And I feel like anytime I see those guys come in in those colorful silk robes and the hats, like, you know, something's going down. Someone's in trouble. Yeah, and they're shooting on the Shaw Brothers sets and using the Shaw Brothers stock extras as well. So it's not like they're reconstructing China in... Chinachita. Yeah, in Chinachita <laughs> or in Spain. Like, because of the, the co-production, they shot, you know, half in Spain and half in, in Hong Kong. So they mixed it up. And so, yeah, I was very... Uh, I was very comfortable with it all, but I got to say, and you know, no disrespect to our guy, he's no Lao Kar Lung with the uh, direction of these action sequences. Because we do get a fun, you know, demonstrating Ho's ability at the beginning of the film, a classic sort of, you know, we're going to get his hero's journey here, right? And we get to see how much of a badass he is. And, uh... He takes on, you know, like all of the warlords dudes basically uh, with just his fists. Mm-hmm. And he's like hopping around, just like, you know, on tra- trampolines. <laughs> uh, and and yeah, you know, it's it's a nice little set piece. But yeah, it's it's not exactly a the real thing. No, 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 no way. I mean, for all of these virtues that both of these films have, and I think there's plenty, the one thing I walked away from this double feature realizing is that Margariti, like, cannot shoot an action scene to save his life. I, like, never knew where I was or where anyone else was. I didn't understand how space worked. Um, and sometimes that was funny and unique, but at other times it was kind of frustrating. And yeah, he doesn't have the the dancing camera for, for martial arts. Yeah. I mean, he certainly knows how to frame a guy facing down another guy, drawing a gun and shooting him. Like he knows yes. how to handle that, but that can be handled in a single setup. And, and Margariti, I, I discovered in like diving more deeply into him, uh, was someone who, you know, was, was certainly very popular, I think with a lot of producers because of his ability to shoot like very cheaply and very quickly. And it was often because he would have multiple cameras set up at different focal lengths and different, you know, angles to capture the same action. So he's sort of like, he would set up like a single shot and he would just grab it from like three different cameras. Dude, he does feel like post-continuity to me, Mm -hmm. to both of your points. Like he's capturing, yeah, like lots of zooms, lots of tracking shots, like really good dynamic camera movement, sometimes very logical as in the gunfight at the beginning of Take a Hard Ride. Other times, yeah, it's like chaos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially when there's a lot of moving pieces. The the martial arts sequences in Blood Money, I guess if I'm going to... F- focus on one of the many titles <laughs> they, they they tend to just like focus on i think from an outsider's perspective the more extreme aspect of what 
you know, he would yeah. think a martial arts film is about. Cause there's a lot of emphasis, as you said, on like the trampoline jumps and, and, and really his character just seems to be flying through the air. We mm-hmm. don't really have that focus on a similar kind of duel of bodies. It's really just a guy floating through space. And as Ryan pointed out, incoherently at times yes there is martial arts in take a hard ride as well you know to to link up these movies because jim kelly's out there cutting guys down with his fists in the middle of the desert as well so i mean obviously these are a year apart you know it's going back into the 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 blood money bag of tricks in that one and probably learned a few things from his first time around (laughs) maybe but yeah you know then we we've we've got to get ho over to America. We've got, well, um, in quotation marks, right? We've got to get him to to Spain, I guess, in this case. (laughs) Monterey. (laughs) Right. And he's got a pretty clever scheme because once he arrives and learns of the situation with Lee Van Cleef, where Lee Van Cleef has been sentenced to death for killing Wang and stealing his fortune, even though, you know, because presumably what everyone thinks has happened is that before everyone could catch Lee Van Cleef, he's passed off the money to an accomplice who has since like run off with Wang's fortune. But in reality, all Lee Van Cleef found were bare asses. <laughs> and when Ho arrives in America and he has an initial meeting with a member of the town who informs him of everything that's going on, he suggests, you know, well, Ho, we can set up a meeting for you in Dakota. And, and Ho is very clever. And he says like, oh, no, 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 I don't want him to know who I am. I'll figure out another way to get information out of him before his hanging. So Ho's strategy is to be arrested without revealing to Dakota Lee Van Cleef that he is related to Wang. And his way of, of accomplishing this is is quite humorous and clever. And that's when he passes by a saloon that has a sign that says, no Negroes, no Chinese, and no unaccompanied dogs. So naturally his thought is, well, what's the easiest way for me to get arrested? It's, well, why don't I walk into this bar with a dog? And naturally uh, a fight certainly breaks out. It beats the shit out of everyone. Yes. Made me think of the sign that just a few years before Bruce Lee kicks in half from fists of furies which is no dogs or chinese allowed you know and i feel like that that is such an iconic symbol from the 70s martial arts cinema itself that there's a chance that this could have even been like slightly a winking reference to it you know i think again that's something that both of these films make pretty clear like you know, right off the bat, uh, an interest that they have in their their look at the West, their their journey into the West that that I think sets them apart uh, in in a in a respect from a lot of other like American westerns. Like these films are both very interested in race and very interested in uh, outsiders and uh, weirdos perceived anyway weirdos. Uh, you know, to to like white ass America at the time. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, his character is, is very consciously like butting up against a lot of, of that, you know, anti Chinese prejudice that was, you know, uh, inflaming the West. Yeah. That's the common bond at the core of these friendships that you, you brought up earlier, Andy, right? Cause ultimately, yeah, we have the, the two friendships in both films and it is their outsider status 
that brings them together no matter how different they are, right? Like mm-hmm. in the case of both movies, the central duo, they're like opposites, but what do they have in common? They're not allowed certain places. They're going to be lynched in certain places. I actually think it's maybe even slightly more explicit uh, in, in Take a Hard Ride because they do reference that it's like, post-civil war very specifically Mm -hmm. and this is obviously also but like a little more effusive in terms of like rooting at anything that specific you know and also like being this goal of the shaw brothers of sort of like introducing chinese culture to american audiences to perhaps european audiences right western audiences shall we say we see through his character a lot of like all right, I also have to like educate these people because he's smarter than everybody. He's certainly more educated than most of the people that we come across. He's a cooler head. He's he's witty. He's funny. He's charming. He's nice. He's polite. And everyone that he encounters is is quite the opposite. You know, and we get this kind of uh, again, like kind of comedic introduction to certain aspects of Chinese culture when Ho as you pointed out, Ryan, like realizing like he's got to get his hands on Dakota uh, helps stage a breakout. You know, he gets Dakota away from the hangman's noose and then they have this like this nice kind of like buddy moment getting to know one another they have this campfire scene where Lee Van Cleef is being treated to a bunch of Chinese delicacies that he's clearly never (laughs) enjoyed before this is pretty good not eel snake much better hell's that? Chinese tea. I thought maybe the horses might have. They wouldn't happen to have anything stronger. Like liquor, maybe? Oh, yes. Chinese liquor. Made of what? Rice. Rice. Ladies drink, huh? Not very strong. No travel very well. Trip on sea, spot. Oh, you're full of surprises. Yeah, and we're also at that little campsite, you know, scene treated to uh, the, 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 like, mock showdown or mock duel that they do where Ho, you know, asks Dakota to draw on him and to show him that he can lock him down with a knife like that, you know, if need be. Yeah, you know, can't get your gun out of your pants, dude. What are you doing? Absolutely. Yeah, every single time any Western, there is like two men showing off their skills of precision, and they just like look at each other and acknowledge, oh. "You're very good." Um, that greatest. gets me every time. Speaking of, you know, this film really is also the the proto Big Trouble in Little China because Lee Van Cleef is yeah the. The bumbling American, or I mean, he even describes himself. He says, uh, "Thief by profession, bum by choice." <laughs> uh, so you know, he's that kind of guy. And uh, and then you have like Ho, who is 
perfect you know he's brave he's brave he's noble he's from a like a rich family uh and he's just you know at every turn he's being respectful and intelligent yes yes he he wants to go back to china he's like i'm gonna go here i'm gonna slum it with all these fucking yokels right and i've just got a mission to take care of but Mm -hmm. i definitely like am 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 sort of just a visitor here in this strange land full of strange people, you know, the West certainly as it is depicted in this and in a lot of other spaghetti Westerns as well is like a violent nihilistic cutthroat dirty place. You know, that to me is one of the big things that, that differentiates spaghetti Westerns from, from American Westerns. And certainly as you even pointed out, Ryan, like, American Westerns prior to their revisionist period where, you know, the West, the frontier town was, was a a place of safety for the most part, a place of security, of civilization, of order. They were often like these very clean streets. And I think in so many spaghetti Westerns, you just see such a different take on the space. And you kind of alluded to this earlier, not only Ryan, because of the differences obviously in geography and and topography but also in like the production design often in spaghetti westerns of the town you know these places are often like filthy fucking shitholes full of racist people who will will kill you for the gold in your teeth you know it is a, it is a much more cynical depiction of the West and end quote civilization in these films. Speaking of, uh, that's when we're introduced as they make their way uh, to the first, you know, mistress of Wang with the tattoo. But number uh, one, to, to, but number one uh, <laughs> is the American mistress, and and they hurt. They hear that she's shacked up uh, with a former Union uh, Army commander who's gone totally insane named Yancey Hobbit, but I was calling him Hobbit. Yeah, me too. In my my mind, (laughs) Yancey Hobbit, who uh, is this, like, who he'll ultimately become, you know, much like Lee Van Cleef and take a hard ride, the pursuing force that is after them and the money, the whole damn movie. So we're introduced to him uh, in this first, you know, butt search, as it were. Uh, And he is now a preacher in a sort of mobile kind of like church that he's got dude being pulled by by horses yes and that is again a, a testament to like the italian production design because the church on wheels that he has is just this like nightmarish little like it looks like something out of german expressionism i honestly oh, yeah. thought he looked like a character out of bloodborne which i can't remember yeah. much if you've played but it's like very yes. similar like a big black carriage it's like lovecraftian almost too i wrote that he was uh he was looking like hodorowski you know oh, with yeah. his huge sure. brim hat yeah and his big leather trench coat yeah Yeah. so he's all yeah he's all decked out and and the villainous preacher yeah the the deacon the false preacher the psycho and he recurring gag throughout the film is him shooting things or people and then quoting scripture uh very comically to a lot of baffled western people You can't come in here, Deacon. You cannot keep out a man of God. It is written. 
The wicked shall rot in hell. I have warned you before, but you ignored me and brought scarlet women to this place to degrade you with their sin. I mean what I say. I will wreak vengeance in the name of the Lord. The wages of sin is death. Thus for every living being, for man to animal, but seven times greater for the sinners. Ecclesiastes 40, 11. Yeah, he's bringing religion uh, in his own twisted way. And again, I think that's a, a, another like very kind of very European, very Italian uh, approach to religion. Both these films have sort of psychotic preacher characters in them, you know? And again, in so many American Westerns uh, from like the classic period, like the building of the church is just such like an important part of a town, you know? The church is a sort of sanctuary. And and in both of these films, it's it it should be noted that the 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 most outwardly religious characters are uh, the most murderous, the most evil characters in the films. The Catholics, you know, they knew what was up. Oh, yeah, yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah, they got that. So we have Yancey Hobbit, uh, who they <laughs> have to uh, sort of work their way around to get to his 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 mistress, uh, this very sweaty woman. Uh, and who they, won't stop sneezing. Yeah, who has a cold and won't stop sneezing. And they also have to work around her chastity belt, which is um, covering up the tattoo on her bottom that Ho yeah. needs to be able to inspect in order to crack the first piece of the code. Thankfully, Dakota's an old hand at getting locks undone, you know. So ultimately, yeah, they they sort of talk their way through this scenario, and they knock him out, right? They, <laughs> yeah, they, they, they say, knock out yeah. Nancy. <laughs> they also just knock him uh, out. <laughs> which is how they get away, uh, but then also how, of course, you know, this thus begins, you know, the great chase of the film, because also, yeah, they let him live you know because they're they're nice boys at the end of the day at least in the context of this film right uh they're not going to kill for no reason but they're certainly gonna kill oh yes yes but as as uh ho was instructed by his his master at the beginning of the film you know he's told uh you now have this great power you have the power of kung fu but you must only use it for self-defense or vengeance, he says to him. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty broad there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I Or vengeance, I was huh? cracking it up, yeah. I'm like, well, that kind of covers a lot, right? Like, what, what would you constitute vengeance as, you know? But yes, as you pointed out, he does have then a certain code. But yeah, you know, they're, they're not just out here to sort of like murder their way to their goals. Really, this is going to be a case of them... Um, as a partnership using their skills, you know, their other skills, not necessarily their their gunfighting skills. So we go from this one to the next one, which is at a, a, a big saloon slash casino. And we get treated again to Ho's uh, intelligence, I would say brilliance, uh, perhaps. Cheating. It's cheating. Yeah, second sight. <laughs> yeah. That shit was unbelievable. They're, they're, they're playing roulette, and Ho has an abacus on the table. What's next? Number six. Sure? Yes, the mathematic is exact science. Need calculate. Six. There's no problem. It is easy. If weigh up all consideration, such as light, heat, 
cold, humidity, and a variation such as brake pedal, and even magnet. Also, friction or axle on wheel is so simple. Simple? Oh, yes. Number six, black but it's like it's this crazy concoction that like makes no sense it almost reminded me of like what could possibly be in ed's secret sauce and good burger like that type of logic it is just like all of these things coalescing into well i can solve this on my abacus because you in the west have no sense of how we would use one of these but he does prove himself to be correct every single time yeah. he's able to solve the puzzles of the roulette table and yeah they break the fucking bank yes <laughs> and this is very important because uh, as they're trying to track down uh, the second butt of the film they believe that it is the uh, proprietor's wife and they're taken up into the office because they've you know won more money than they have you know or while ho specifically is like well actually if we can look at your wife's ass uh, we'll, we'll, call it even. we'll call it even. <laughs> and the proprietor is like, wow, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, because initially he's like, I'll give you my land in Idaho. And they're yeah, like, no, 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 we just want to see your wife's ass. <laughs> yeah, I love that guy. He's such a small scene. But like, I've felt for this guy, this like small town casino saloon owner, whatever, slash pimp whatever his 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 full title would be and like these guys basically yeah cheat and get it seems like what was it like over a hundred thousand dollars or something which again in the west like my god yeah this guy's freaking out he's like i can't possibly pay you like we don't have that money and then yes when they 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 offer the the trade and of course i we should point out dakota's quite uh unhappy about this because yes. dakota thinks he's got a big payday dakota's ready to just like pack it up you know he's like fuck it i got the money here we just won i'm out you know like this is a treasure right here but the treasure is of course yes swapped for a butt for for and a, the wrong one at that because they realize that uh well she doesn't have a tattoo and uh her twin sister is in fact the uh russian mistress they're looking for and and, and so yeah they they uh they get it done again they get the you right know? butt yeah they get the yeah. right butt <laughs> and uh this one this one was actually covered in a bunch of signatures they said it resembled the autograph guest book of peking that was what they how they referred to, to this ass. <laughs> yes. And yeah, they signed her ass for ten dollars. They gave her ten dollars and signed her ass and also got the second piece uh, of the puzzle of the clue of Wang's will. Yes. But hot on their trail is of course the deacon. And then we get the the third butt, which is in the 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 train. That's also the home, I guess, yeah. of this weird English gentleman. That's Lord made, yeah. Barclay. Yeah, the West is <laughs> his personal little playground. I, this, to be honest, this is probably like for for a couple different reasons, maybe my favorite of the the butt sequences because there's a few just like details that were killing me in this. Right, so like this guy's got you know his his initials on the train LHB, and he's got a little like garden on the back of the train, and and they sort of like bullshit their way on, and yeah, they tell him they're doctors, right? They tell him they're doctors. 
doctors and immediately uh, he launches into like, didn't you go to Eaton? And Lee Van, <laughs> Van Cleef's like, uh, no, uh, I was in Sing Sing at the time or whatever, you know, ha ha ha. But then my, my favorite little weird bit of the movie is when they meet the butler, Jeeves, and they're brought into this ornate cab. Ah, oh, Jeeves, let her ladyship know that the doctor has arrived, would you, and tell her he's an intimate with the Prince of Wales. How? Thank you, Jeeves. How? <laughs> yes. He claims that Americans are really rebels, and that Indian is the one and only official language of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> And then the butler just like disappears into the other room. He's wearing like a tuxedo, we should point out too. Like, yeah, really bizarre. So Jeeves is, yeah, Jeeves <laughs> believes in the cause, you know? Like that was just so, so weird and such a funny thing. But again, I think it is them trying to make this very spaghetti political point. Sure. You know, just to bring that up again, you know, it's like, whose land? Is, yes. You know? Got um, this British guy's train popping all over around here. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, again, the, 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 the whites are the butt of most of the jokes, no pun intended, uh, the butt of most of the jokes in this in this film, and like this character, yeah, Marsh, I, I I loved him too. I thought he this really was like the funniest scene, like uh, from from start to finish, and 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 even like as they're 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 ending, you know, and they they go and they look at his wife's butt, and they've they've convinced him that they're doctors, you know, they're they're sort of learned men, and that. You know, Ho specifically is like a Chinese healer. Yeah, he's going to do acupuncture. Right. Yeah. He does do like some acupuncture, but really he's just like looking at, at, at his wife's butt. And as they're like leaving, uh, the Englishman just says, the wisdom of the East. <laughs> it's like such a fucking joke. Like these guys like lied their way and looked at your wife's ass and then left. That's right. And then we get the fourth where they go into town, another dusty western town, uh, and we find, uh, well, Lee Van Cleef finds a, a, a hot sort of uh, burlesque show yeah. and some uh, some old friends of his, yeah. while Ho goes to the Chinese laundry to uh, find the, the fourth mistress. The final piece of the puzzle. And there's a great scene with Lee Van Cleef just getting down in like a can-can line, just like parting <laughs> his ass off. Oh, I'm gonna dance with the prettiest gals in town, upside down, all over. I'm gonna dance with the prettiest gals in town, and we'll dance by the light. Oh, Dakota. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. One, two. Oh. Oh. If you're friends of mine, I want you to be friends of his as well. Alina <laughs> Cleef like seems like he's having such a blast in this movie because again, it's like so uh, atypical. I think of the persona mm -hmm. that that he became known for in spaghetti westerns, and Lee Van Cleef developed such a star persona for. Uh, 
you know, Italian audiences that they, they often, regardless of the movie that he was in, whether it was like a Corbucci film or a Leone film and even another Margariti film, his character had, would, would often share like so many similar things. Uh, but here, like I really do feel in this moment, like, man, he was having a blast because he was getting to do something he didn't often do he's playing the the comic relief almost if you will yeah and i think it's in stark contrast to in take a hard ride like he 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 looks you know much younger and happier here and oh, he yeah. in, in take a hard ride he looks old and kind of depressed yeah. and i think part of that is because he is kind of in that film a one note villain he's just pursuing yeah. them he's an and autopilot here, in that and movie. here he gets to yeah he gets to show out his range and i do think he's really yucking it up like uh i got that vibe uh, as well he like nails his jokes he nails his character you think because of who he is and his star power his persona is going to be the hero but he really just is going to bumble his way through alongside the the quiet, unassuming, humble hero of the film. Yeah, and so humble, in fact, that he, instead of, you know, finding the fourth and final clue to the will, he falls in love with uh, the Chinese mistress of Wang. And so he has a nice little dinner where they talk about missing home in China. And it's this nice, cute little, you know, quiet scene yeah but things you know as expected really take a turn for the worse here we have to have a climax of some sort yeah it's and, a margariti western you got to bring in the big guy <laughs> yeah exactly so so big man rides into town and you know ho forgot to check the code on the the chinese mistress's bottom and the big man snatches her up he lays waste to the town he lights things on fire it, it, things go terribly and he runs off with her so then eventually our guys they have to go after her and it all kind of climaxes at this old abandoned mission house right there has to be like a new location for the big final set piece and that's where they have to head in order to rescue her from the clutches of the our big guy. And, of course, the deacon who's been yes. pulling <laughs> these strings and is, uh, you know, the one who ordered the posse in there because he's tired, of course, of being one step behind our heroic duo. And so finally he gets the drop on them and then sets up a siege situation, yeah. you know, <laughs> where they're going to defend the mission. And if I know anything... If I've learned anything at this point, it's that this could only be solved one way with a commando raid to the fort. <laughs> That's right. That is absolutely true, Andy. And we get, yeah, we, you know, we get to see our duo flex in, in, you know, their own way, right? So we have on the one hand, Ho, who's going to, sneak into the fort right while dakota is gonna get the gatling gun mm-hmm. oh yeah he's gonna get gatling's gun and he's gonna put it to work and he does uh which i actually like ryan like you you were kind of talking about how like incoherent sometimes the action sequences <laughs> are and i, yeah. I kind of love this climax for how incoherent it was because sure. it is just uh, a certain point where they just unleash chaos and it's it primarily begins with 
what's supposed to be, I guess, a diversion for Ho, where Lee Van Cleef's like, I'll, I'll, I'll create a diversion. You'll know it when you hear it. And he just fashions a Gatling gun uh, in between two horses and then like just holds on to this Gatling gun and is dragged around this fort he by these horses. He goes full Ben-Hur on that shit. Yes, dude. like a chariot with a Gatling gun attached to it and just, uh, yes, lays waste to just about every single person there creating uh, very violent, very violent uh, death from this this uh, industrial killing machine of the of the of the new west yeah. it sets up then this this martial arts duel between ho and the sort of axe wielding yeah. tomahawk wielding native american strongman that's been uh, allied with the deacon and they they have a pretty insane little fight where i feel like half of it was was in uh, reverse was filmed yes. exactly yeah i was gonna say you know you talking about like both of them flexing and showing off what they're capable of ho is capable of bending space and time and yes. rewinding the cycle of the wheel of time itself and yes he yeah he is like very ungracefully like leapt back up on top of a building where his hair is reacting to very different wind than the physics of what we're seeing on screen yeah I mean, that's really the moment where you really do see like, oh, my God, like you you can't just be Margariti and and have like perhaps just watched a couple Wuxia films and be like, I know I know how to do it. We can do it. I got it. You know, how do we pull that off? Right. Well, we'll just we'll, we'll run it in reverse, you know, rewind we'll the tape. Do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, woof. And then Dakota shoots. The deacon, of course, as all of this is is wrapping up, uh, and that's they've they've got all the clues, they've got everything they need to unlock this treasure. And the irony of it all, right? They go back to China. Ho goes back to see the warlord, who is pissed because he's returned without the fortune and ho kindly tries to explain to them the fortune's been here the whole time remember that statue my uncle sent you yeah it's in there and so when he does as you point out like arrive with only this like wooden indian that 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 wang had sent back you know at a certain point he he quickly says like you failed your mission prepare to have your head chopped off which is when ho says whoa 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 whoa, whoa. time out here you go it was in the Indian all along. And what is it? Perhaps the greatest treasure of all. Stocks in United States corporations. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and yes. he says uh, specifically, you are 10 times richer than you were. Thanks to my uncle. Yeah. Yeah. Kevin Bacon from Quicksilver certainly would have been thrilled. But I will say, you know, it's following this moment <laughs> oh. that we are treated to one of the most beautiful yes. <laughs> images in all of cinema. I yes. want a like wide wall length oil on canvas of this frame of the film. And that's Lee Van Cleef wearing a silk robe and like an Asian conical rice paddy hat sitting. And he's being like carted around 
to be to be shown China. And he is just he's so thrilled to be there. He's so happy the film brought him out to, to Hong Kong. Yeah, for a day shoot. For exactly. He can't wait for his upcoming, you know, vacation after the film wraps. Um, but just the joy on his face and the just like radical like the last thing I would have ever expected to see that man wear. It is such a charged image. Oh, it's beautiful, Ryan. Yeah, it's beautiful. Because he does say <laughs> You know, to sort of like end this film, like, all right, time to show me China, you know, like, come on, let's go. And I I really do feel like that is like a genuine statement from Lee Van Cleef in these terms. He did his one day on set in Hong Kong and he is literally ready to see China. To be like (laughs) wined and dined in the finest fashion by the Shaw brothers in Hong Kong. Like, he's so ready for it, dude, you know? I've sweat my ass off in fucking Spain in these podunk towns for 10 fucking years. Like, I, I want something new. Give it to me right now. Yeah, he's not gonna be spitting out that rice wine now. He's gonna he's gonna be sipping that delicacy. He, oh, yeah. He's happy to be there. It is it's something everyone deserves to see. I recommend everyone check this movie out on Tubi. It's super funny. Uh, but if anything at all, just scroll to the end so you can catch this image. It's beautiful. Well, that that joyous smile on Lee Van Cleef's face was was not to last that long, as we discover, because. Uh, not even a year later, perhaps, he's back in Spain. He's, he's, he's back. dragged back to those Canary Islands to sweat under that hot, hot sun. Just like oh. no shade anywhere out there. Yeah. Dusty volcanic rock. Um, yeah, it was funny. In my hand, I, my idea of how to segue into the next film was, you know, one thing Take the Hard Ride is is really missing is the all of the butts that are present. Um in blood money but what we are treated <laughs> to is um plenty of lee van cleef's chest hair oh yeah my god the like it almost looks like a full wig uh is growing like out of his chest in this movie just all that silver he's a real man's man in and take a hard ride <laughs> God, I just couldn't get over how long his hair was. Like all around overgrown. Yeah, really intense. You know. Yeah, he looks very unkempt, uh, and uh, though there is a certain like rugged sexiness here, Ryan, uh, I, 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 I do again like just feel it's like it's it's very indicative. Like it's it's not even a year later, and and he does somehow look like he aged like five years between these two films like he just he looks he looks rough you know and he looks tired yeah. Dude, <laughs> i'm spe- sure he was speaking of looking rough and tired uh one of the qualities of take a hard ride that i i certainly appreciated is the decrepit old hollywood stars now selling their wares in the european market oh, yeah. <laughs> we've got harry carey jr we've got barry sullivan we've got you know faces you've seen and loved in westerns before but now it's all just kind of off, you know, and especially the presence of, of Harry Carey, you know, being such a Ford fan that I am to see him in this world is like upsetting. Oh, yeah. You yeah. Know? <laughs> With those like very, very, very brown teeth. Like he has the most brown teeth you've ever seen. Like, yeah. It's been a long road since uh, she wore a yellow ribbon, you know, or whatever. <laughs> Actors in so many spaghetti westerns just look 
gross, you know, whether it's, it's the, the Spanish or Italian or German, uh, extras that you'd see, you know, with scars on their faces and everyone looks like they're sweating. People are missing teeth. People are missing limbs. The, the brutality of the West upon like, you know, the, the, the toll that it takes on the body is so much more present, I think, in so many spaghetti Westerns compared to like a lot of contemporary Hollywood films or classic Hollywood Westerns, you know? Absolutely. You know, I will say for what it's worth as we're talking about how a lot of these people should seem a bit decrepit in the film, I think Dana Andrews looks pretty good, all things considered. <laughs> He's a bit of a silver fox in his brief yeah. turn as Morgan. Also, you know, this film has one of those things that always drives me nuts uh, for like no particular reason. I mean, I'm just like a fussy boy. You guys know that. Uh-huh. But I hate in a movie when it says guest appearance it's not a tv show it's a movie (laughs) dane andrews is in the movie he's not a guest he's in it (laughs) that stuff drives me nuts but i loved getting to see him i i like his brief moment in the film as he's the the cattle rancher that's working with with um with pike played by played by jim brown yeah i thought dane andrews was like a a very welcome face and one that still feels like he carries a bit of gravitas he's not like harry carey jr later taking a dump while singing my darling clementine (laughs) 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 shameful turn from a ford actor like it broke my heart (laughs) i love it oh my darling oh my darling oh Clementine, you are gone forever. Dreadful sorry, Clementine. You finished? I am now. I mean, I loved it, but I was like, man. (laughs) Dana Andrews is respectable in this movie. (laughs) Yes, and I think that's also because he represents... A, a certain like ideal that that seemingly like no other character in this film has you know he's kind of introduced to us in this in this in this way where he's you know i think you kind of pointed this out in your intro ryan but but he's he's made a lot of money off of this this cattle driver just simply being a, a cattle driver in general and he has a vision he has a vision for a sort of like utopic community that this money can serve. He talks to Pike about that, you know, about like, you know, the 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 goal of this isn't to, for, for one of us to become rich. You know, Pike says, like, how does it feel to be a rich man? And it's kind of like, no, 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 this money is going to build a place for all of us. And I, I believe that it can be read a lot of different ways. You know, Marsh and I uh, took that spaghetti Western class that Marsh alluded to. And and one of the things our great Professor Muscarello always was drumming into our heads about, about so many of these spaghetti Western directors is that, well, they were all communists. You got to understand, you know, the politics are different in these movies. And I think you see a slight shade of that here, you know, maybe not full on red, but certainly a more like pink shade, you know, he, mm-hmm. he, it's very vague what he's talking about building, but there is this sense of like communal living of, of money being shared of, of people living free and without concern of anyone coming in and fucking with them or messing with them. And, and I think there's also, a, a, again, a, a sort of racial element as well, because you have him, 
you know, this this wealthy white man who is is treating Pike, a black man in the post-Civil War uh, reconstruction of America. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I would say as an equal, but he's certainly treating him like probably more respectfully than than certainly we'll see the rest of the whites treat the black characters in this film. And there's a sense of obligation, like with the money as well, you know, like for Pike and, and for, for Dana Andrews, it's like, yeah, there is no question what this is for and where it's going, you know, whereas other people in the West are going to have a lot of other ideas once they hear about the Morgan payroll, uh, which is going to, you know, spread like wildfire. $86,000? Like, yes. But it's, yeah, this this sense of, of obligation to the community that is driving him the whole time, not dissimilar from the familial obligation that Ho has, uh, in blood money yeah absolutely and so you know he feels this weight especially when morgan dies when he just like falls apart (laughs) in the middle of the road one day um and then passes on this task to pike but then there's also there's this tension that's sort of hinted at and it was something that i guess was never like totally clear at various points throughout the film outside of the fact that there must have just been a bounty on pike at one point but like lee van cleef is like so dead set initially against pike and he's coming after him, you know, because he's like, oh, there's like still a con. He's like, what does he say? Like, is it like there's still a contract out on you? Or he's just like, you're like yeah. a gig I never finished. The only glimpse into Pike's past we get is a very late film flashback when yeah. they show up at the mines. And it reveals that he was a slave or a slave laborer at the mines. So I actually, although they never say it. My reading of it was perhaps he was a fugitive slave and Lee Van Cleef was a bounty hunter in that regard. Yes. Okay, so that makes sense and that was something I was considering because there is, you know, a, you know, not to get too far ahead, there is like a, a central scene later in the film where they do confront each other and Lee Van Cleef has to step away. And there is like, there's something shared between the two of them in their eyes. And that there is like kind of like underneath it all this acknowledgement that as a bounty hunter, I don't have that power anymore over you specifically. It does feel like something was stripped away, that he is like no longer a fugitive or doesn't have fugitive status because it is post-Civil War. Yeah, I mean, he also allies with essentially a KKK wizard in this film. So right. like, ex-Confederate. Yes, yeah. and explicitly with the Confederate flag. So like, these are the guys, yeah, that, what's his name? Kiefer. Uh, Kiefer, the Kiefer, yeah. the bounty hunter. Uh, these are the guys he's hanging out with. I mean, he's a, he's a Johnny Reb, you know? You know, for sure. And I think there is, again, like there's so much play with his eyes because I think Margarita's trying to be like, this guy's racist. But like, again, I just don't think Lee Van Cleef's really playing along. He's just kind of like a body, you know, yeah. so much of it. Absolutely. Like, it's so vague, and I don't think Lee Van Cleef is willing to, like, engage with it um, in any, any meaningful way, you know? I mean, I guess in a lot of sense, there's there's a lot of that in the film, where it's, like, flirting with ideas about race, but it doesn't fully commit all the time. But when it does, it hits harder than you would expect, I think, from, from something like this. Well, it should also be pointed out, the particulars of working in these, on these Italian westerns, these spaghetti westerns for a lot of actors and and especially the American actors, you know, I've heard a lot of stories where these actors like 
they they didn't really get like full scripts you know mm. they would get like their lines translated to them they would they would sometimes just be like fed lines they would have a sense overall of what was going on but but i i have to imagine in a lot of situations they would either be like disinterested in actually like knowing all the intricacies of the plot, you know, especially for a guy like Lee Van Cleef at this point of just kind of being like, just tell me where to stand. What are, what are my lines? What do I do? Like, okay, that's great. You know, that, that they're probably not given, uh, especially on the more cheapo kind of productions. It's certainly like a Margariti production. Like I doubt Lee Van Cleef even really knew what his character was like, what he right, was supposed he was to told be. He was a bounty hunter. Well, that's, yeah. yeah, that's like, I can't tell if, if I like this aspect of the movie or I don't, because I went back and forth throughout it, but it does feel like all the actors are doing their own thing and a different thing that doesn't really come together. And I, yeah. I, I found someone, I didn't get a chance to watch the special features of the, this, this disc, but uh, I found someone who did. And they said that there's a, of course, a Williamson interview on the special features. And he said that they were all specifically modeling their characters after other screen personas. So of course, Jim Brown is doing John Wayne. Sure. Jim Kelly is doing Bruce Lee. And Williamson is doing Burt Lancaster in Vera Cruz. Absolutely. Specifically, he said. That tracks. That's good. That tracks. Yeah, I see it. And it is, and I mean, again, that is a very big, like, spaghetti Western thing, right? It's sort of like, you're going to be in this movie and you're going to be this guy from this other movie, you know? And like, that's what we want you to do. Yeah. We want you to like be this guy from this movie yeah. that was successful. Be the black John Wayne, you know? Yeah. Okay. You know, and Jim Brown certainly tries, you know, yeah. does a pretty good job of it too. I love his stoicism, but I want, I just want him to open up a little more. Yeah. You know? I mean, Tyree yeah. is definitely the yeah. more fun character, the more interesting character and seemingly like, the character that, that I think has a lot more like kind of character development we see throughout the film. Cause certainly when we're introduced to his character, this is where Fred Williamson's character Tyree is introduced at a card game. And Ryan alluded to this early. Uh, he, he cheats in, and I have to say the most novel way I'd ever yeah, seen absolutely. in a, in a, in kind a of poker overboard, game, you know? very elaborate cheating, uh, where, you know, he, we, we, we see his cards and he was going for a flush. He took one last card and it didn't quite hit. So he's got four cards to a flush and he's got another guy across the table from him who has a King high straight. So at that point, he starts stalling and underneath the table uses his foot to dump out a leather bag that had a snake in it, you know? And everyone sort of leaps up from the table like, oh my God, a snake, ah, a snake. And at that point, that's when he slides out the last diamond he needs for his flush. And as cool as a cucumber, simply says, I thought we were playing cards here, right? Doesn't he say something like that, you know? And then lays it down, the flush. Uh, and that's when he discovers that there's this money out there, the big Morgan payroll, and decides, well, this card game was all well and good, but really, that payroll is going to be his big ticket. Mm -hmm. And he's got that great line where as he's heading out and they ask, where are you going? He says, I'm going fishing. Um, mm -hmm. And he very quickly does catch 
uh, what he set out to fish because he crosses paths with Pike um, out in a location that like that's one of those moments where I then I quickly looked it up. I'm like, where was this shot? Because I knew it was Spain, but I was like, God, like where where could this be? And I was like, oh, of course, this is the Canary Islands. Like there's nowhere else that really looks like this. (laughs) There's certainly nowhere in America that looks like this. And that's one of those cool things. And that's why I got excited when it was on, like thinking about spaghetti westerns and feeling so unstuck in space, Um, especially this film that's trying to engage with America's race relations too, to like have it set somewhere like that seems so aestheticized and different um, in in a western format, you know? Mm But that scene is especially funny, too, because this is like a thread that the film doesn't really engage with from this point on. But when Fred Williamson intervenes to save Pike from a shootout, his method is he's got bags of snakes. He's just like a snake man. (laughs) And he like tosses them in. He like throws out all his snakes. And he doesn't really have any more snakes throughout the rest of the movie. He's got some other like odds and ends. Well, he threw them all out in that moment. (laughs) Yeah, I guess he'd have to go and collect some more. But I like the idea that like he's continually collecting snakes to get him out of sticky situations in his life. It is such, uh, such a hallmark again of, of, I think so many spaghetti Westerns where there's just this thing that's, that's like kind of overly elaborate and, and very kind of like high concept, you know, a quirk, a character will have a, a, a certain like, signature that a character will have that's so unique and just found in these spaghetti westerns you know a, a gambler with a bag full of snakes yeah because he he gets the drop on two guys like he's standing behind them they have no idea he's there all he has to do is pull out his gun and like bam bam they're dead but instead it's like he thinks about it for a moment and like gets his bag of snakes and throws the snakes out and distracts them it's like this whole elaborate thing where it's like you added five steps when all you needed was one. Yeah, you gotta do it with style. I mean, it's how I feel sometimes playing a video game. It's like, well, I could, you know, just like swipe my sword here, or I've got this like crazy thing in my pouch that I like won't know what it'll do. It's like, could be a bag of snakes. And then so you toss it out to see how it'll play out. And again, that for me is I think why I've always been really like drawn to spaghetti westerns and even spaghetti westerns that can be like kind of subpar is that that spaghetti westerns have a way of sort of like aestheticizing and fetishizing weapons and you know tools of destruction it's like they really Mm -hmm. like fetishize guns in spaghetti westerns which again i think speaks to a sort of like outsider perspective on the west and on the westerns and american gun culture i think you're seeing that in kind of interesting ways in this in this film. I think it's worth mentioning, too, that it's no surprise that Williamson is chewing the most scenery because, of course, he would go on, uh, you know, I, I think even the same year that this film came out, he launched his directing career. And his directing career is one where he plays, like, a, a you know, a wisecracking pimp hustler type action hero slash, you know, whatever he's doing in these like international films shot in the Philippines that he's directing with all this <laughs> like same money from this like international market. So I do feel like, yeah, he's he's out there creating. He's out there like really playing it up writing his own lines, perhaps, yeah. you know, things like that. Building his persona. For yeah, sure. definitely. I see a gambler in a black suit and a ruffled shirt with a bag full of snakes and the longest, thinnest cigar in his mouth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think 
this is not a man to be trusted. And he makes it pretty clear right off the bat. Why don't you get back on that horse before your ideas get out of hand? I'm thinking on getting rich too. But my mama always taught me to look ahead. Let's say I killed you, took the money. They just come looking for me. But you got the right idea. Make it to Mexico, spend the rest of your day spending. Is that your proposition? You got it. We ride together from here to Mexico. I protect your tail, you watch mine. And when we get there? Once we cross that big river, all bets are off. Why should I trust you any more than them? Because they're dead, and you want to stay alive. And as you pointed out, Andy, that's really like why also the Williamson character is the heart of the film is because Pike is unchanging. He is completely duty-bound. Like, this money must go back to Sonora. There's no moment in the film that would ever make you question he's going to try and do anything else with it. Whereas it's out in the open the whole time. It's like part of their friendship and relationship is even joking about what's going to happen when we get to the border, you know? We're friends now, but what's going to happen? But I also, again, like the, the, the racial element comes through so intensely in this encounter because part of why he says like they'd be a good team is because he says, well, with me alongside you you're invisible because to all these dumb fucking whites one black man looks just like another they'll lose track of like who you are right that they they won't be able to tell us apart basically it's just going to create confusion and we will see that play out in the film at several points. Yeah, because there's like the doppelganger, like black cowboys that are mm -hmm. in the same space as all this is occurring and they get wrapped up in it. Yes, just mistaken identity because they see the color of their skin and start shooting, you know? So that is baked into it. And yeah, this really is like a, a film of fits and starts in like so many ways because ultimately yeah. the the plot is simply the escape and the chase and so Kiefer Lee Van Cleef is the <laughs> the one guy who is not dying right so like there are essentially waves of posses and gangs and bandits that that take a run at our boys, but are ultimately unsuccessful. And, and Lee Van Cleef is organizing different groups. He's following them on his own. He's, yeah, he's trying to, you know, play the long game, essentially. Yeah. But it gets kind of, I mean, like for me, it got kind of confusing at a certain point because yes. I'm like, <laughs> he shows himself to be so capable and, and, and so able to handle like anything, right? And yeah. he keeps, complicating things by just like grabbing more guys and like <laughs> and and saying like of course like yeah everybody will get an equal share and that's why people kind of buy into it because everybody wants the money and and he even goes so far as to threaten to and and indeed even kill men who are like trying to get the money on their own like he doesn't want competition but he also like at a certain point he's got like 30 guys with him you know it's like crazy he, he like builds an army and and is proposing equal shares at least until they meet 
the Mexicans, but we'll get to that later. They get a very, a very different deal than, than equal shares. But yeah. And it's certainly like a very seemingly untrustworthy group of dudes too, that he's bringing along. Like his willingness to just trust them and use them as labor for his enterprises is pretty odd. But at the same time, Pike and Tyree are also collecting people on their journey, at least initially, when they encounter um, a stage that's been robbed and they see Jim Kelly here as Kashtuk, who is using martial arts to defend the stage and to defend Catherine, uh, whose husband has just been killed by the people robbing the stage. And that's like a classic, I feel, you know, real bummer 70s spaghetti western attitude of just like well your husband's dead and she almost kind of just accepts it as like well that's it you know for me too like this is just the west like there he goes <laughs> you know yeah. like she's pretty defeated about it yeah she kind of becomes like the goth chick like she's constantly saying really like <laughs> totally. depressing things and like talking about suicide and shit yeah. well she's had a very depressing life her time in new orleans didn't sound great no but no. that's a re- you know that is a recurring theme in the film is everyone has a, a sad story behind mm-hmm. them yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone's carrying with them all of this, all of this baggage. I mean, even then, like we don't really get a glimpse into Kashtuk's life, um, but they do still give us a bit of detail. And in a way, it's it's kind of contradictory, but it, it, there is almost more thoughtful detail than you know an indigenous character in an American Western would typically have, because they point out the fact that so he can't speak for himself. He he doesn't have a tongue. His tongue has been cut out. So Kashtuk is silent throughout the film. And I couldn't tell if they were ever referencing explicitly whether he was like a black man raised by Native Americans or if he was just supposed to be passing as an indigenous character. But they do, with the specificity, bring up the fact that he is a Terra Humara Indian, which, and I did a little bit of research, and they are known, they are like, that's regionally specific, you know, like that's where they were, this journey that they're taking um, into Sonora, Mexico. Um, And they're known for being able to run extremely long distances. And so that is something that they utilize in the film. There is specific here, you know, when they're referring to a tribe, they're referring to an actual tribe in the area. Um, mm-hmm. And I like that kind of regional focus, even if the film is shot in Spain. Yeah, you know, again, I think it's it's easy on the surface when you just sort of like lump all spaghetti westerns in to sometimes like read them as just being like, be like, oh, it's just this like fantasia of of the American western film, and and all they know is what they've seen in other American western films. But it's not actually like true, and and I think from director to director, it certainly varies. But you know. Leone was like very particular about like doing research and even in some of the things that just seem that didn't happen that couldn't possibly have taken place like you come to find out that like no that is a very weird thing that did happen or like they are in the right place at the right time maybe not all the details and certainly there is plenty of you know goofy shit that we're going to see and experience but but i think like some of the directors and and margariti like worked with leone and like knew leone so it doesn't surprise me that there are you know those details that 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 uh that come through in all of that i mean in spite of the fact that it is 
Jim Kelly, and he's basically just like you know looking like Billy Jack and doing kung fu, you know, right? Like I mean, yeah. He's got like the Billy Jack hat on, you know, like. But it's like they have all these gaps in their in their script or their story, so they're like, well, I guess if we're gonna fill these, we might as well fill them with real facts. Like they just take the time to actually look these things up so that it does check out, which I think is an interesting approach to a genre film like this. And they are constantly joking about their crew. Uh, which at this point, like halfway through the movie is, yeah, two black cowboys on horses, a French prostitute, and uh, an, an indigenous guy that just runs everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, this is a weird crew. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think, again, like uh, Tyree makes like a joke, like we're we're gonna stand out like a sore thumb this way you know like boy everyone he's yeah. gonna be coming to find us you know <laughs> so much for being invisible i think is the point he, he makes you know it's impossible to be invisible when you have such a colorful vest that tyree is donning throughout this film he, he's a flashy dresser oh yeah. yeah oh god yeah i mean he was cracking me up uh like we didn't really talk about how in you know blood money lee van cleef is is smoking a nice cigar the whole time but Williamson as Tyree takes it to the next level with his like just long like cigarillos like yeah. it's probably why everyone was on their ass the whole time just like a cloud of smoke <laughs> you know behind yeah. them yeah because really if you look at that crew what do we have we have we have black men we have a woman we have a, a Native American character we have all these people just simply trying to get somewhere and build a place of their own and they are beset upon them by all of these disgusting, rotten white men trying to drag them down. These racists, these scumbags, these these religious fundamentalists, these nihilists, these rapists. You know, and it's it's a it's I think a very pointed statement towards like the tragedy of 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 a world in which you know the majoritarian par excellence, the white man is constantly uh, 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 doing all of this harm to people who are simply just trying to to perhaps elevate themselves in in a way. Yeah, because the money, too, is like, for, you know, from honest toil as well. This yeah. is good, clean money, yeah. you know? This isn't just, uh, you know, uh, something stolen out of a vault somewhere, you know? And the, the whole, everyone in the land feels entitled to this $86,000, yeah. you know? Yeah. And the film really, yeah, ratchets up, as we mentioned earlier, when uh, Halsey gets introduced, uh, who is the, you know, ex-Confederate, uh, explicit racist, leading his Gatling gun-wielding band of maniacs. And <laughs> yeah. this is like, you know... Uh, Lee Van Cleef's big play. Like, I'm gonna get these guys, gonna get the marauders back together. You came because God sent you here. He means for me to ride on this crusade. Not the money, Kiefer. It's what they plan to do with him. The devil's work. Oh, they'll claim to be delivering it, protecting it for others. But we know, don't we, Kiefer, that that's a lie. It's just a test of your purpose, Nick. First met you at the end of the war. That's right. They called us marauders then, didn't they? Because we no longer obeyed the rules of war. But I knew I obeyed the rule of God when I took revenge on his enemies. 
you know, we get this huge shootout, one of like a dozen in this film, obviously, yeah. <laughs> uh, as the uh, Jerry Goldsmith horns are blaring. And that's like one small note, like... I appreciated the uh, the American composer's take on the spaghetti score in like yeah, a really perverse way, because Goldsmith like can't help but be like poppy and like American in his own way. But he's like doing a pretty good job. I like this yeah. score quite a bit. Although, didn't he have didn't he have at a certain point like synthesizers, like really like seventy synthesizers oh, in yeah. there a little bit too? Oh like, yeah, 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 dude. He scored the Omen like one year later on like all synths. So. But yeah, it is it is very episodic from this point on as people keep trying to get the money from them. We have the big uh, set piece on a bridge. You know, you see a you see a big you know rope oh. rickety bridge that's extending over a canyon in a western. You know that thing's gonna get cut and just come <laughs> crashing down, um, and it does. And that that moment is very funny when the two cowboys um, they failed across the bridge and it gets cut and falls, and we're supposed to believe that they're actually like hanging over the edge of a precipice and it is so clear that it's just like a camera slightly tilted but in reality they are sitting on just like flat even ground um <laughs> that was that was like one of the many gags that just doesn't play at all and looks like something i would have done in like a high school film dude there's some fast cheap and out of sh- control shit in this movie because there's also when pike and tyree take the wagon over the chasm oh god yeah that was insane it literally like it, it shows them hurling towards like certain death and then it just cuts and they're somehow like across a gorge yeah. and they're fine yeah there's never a moment where it looks like <laughs> anything is in the air it looks like they hit a bump and they were just like thank god we made it and both molly and i were like what on earth what did they make what happened and then <laughs> yeah. you see other cowboys on the other side of the gorge in the distance and like you're the like, fucking grand canyon <laughs> yeah you're like good lord these guys soared across the skies to cross that canyon and we don't get to see any of that yeah but there's not even a cutaway he tries to make that convincing by only ever we're only ever seeing the wagon we don't like cut to reactions of like a head following it you know across the air <laughs> um we 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 just see the wagon very confusing yeah it was as if they just had like a couple like italian like production assistants just like tip the back end of their, <laughs> their wagon up and they just kind of like jumped out and that scene that moment is following a tragic bit where uh catherine sort of you know feeling like she has nothing left to live for this is like becoming a treacherous shootout she she does a fake out she grabs the saddlebags that would have all the money in them um and she runs and she gets gunned down by the gatling gun and when they go to check the bags for all the cash they realize she left the cash behind she was carrying empty saddlebags and they they gatling downed a woman for for no reason at all oh yeah and that was like a pretty to me fucking vicious like brutal death scene like even though you don't see explicitly like the gore uh you see like the dude who's working the gatling gun just who looks like michael bay (laughs) he does yeah (laughs) he's like a good old blonde boy yeah and he just turns the gatling gun on her and just cranks and cranks and cranks and she's in the same like spot she's just like on the ground and and i i really got the impression that like they turned her into like a pulp, like, cause you don't even see yeah. like the aftermath of it. There's just then like a, a quiet kind of silence 
uh, a very uncomfortable, awkward silence of all these dudes after they they just yeah gatling to woman to death just eviscerated her yeah even like the nastiest guys imaginable even they kind of take a step back and they're like oh jesus (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it gives them the chance to to escape and they they steal the gatling gun and they they soar over that canyon yeah the french the french goth girl went suicide by gatling yeah so then we we get uh the 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 next big group to join as well as they head to uh calvera's camp on foot they're they're going to this this mexican town uh that's known as calvera's camp and uh, when harry carey jr i dude i i was really getting a kick out of him but like i love when they're, <laughs> they're they're with the posse and it's like well they're probably heading to calvera's camp you just suddenly cut to harry carey jr and he's just like good mexican food there <laughs> <laughs> Like that was his contribution. I was calling him and the other guy. So there's like, yeah, there, you know, there's all these like uh, sort of duos and like pairs in this film. And there's like Harry Carey Jr. and the other guy who's also like a classic Hollywood actor. And I just was calling them the bozos because <laughs> yeah, they they're yeah. like they're the villainous yeah. comic relief. Like they're not as cutthroat as all like these people around them, but ultimately they're after the money as well. And the joke being that they went on the cattle drive with Pike and now they're trying to steal all his money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They are just the <laughs> shittiest fucking dudes, you know? And it's so nihilistic. Like everybody is just like, like you said, Marsh, just like turning in whatever, whatever ethics they might've had at a certain point, the minute they found out about this money, because they've also been joined by the sheriff from the beginning of the film who said Lee Van Cleef was just like heartless for being only in it for the fucking money. But leaving Lee Van Cleef, it's like, would you turn in your badge all of a sudden? He's like, yeah, I'm getting mine now too. Like everybody. <laughs> yeah. Even the sheriff is out here trying to steal this money. Everybody. It's kind of like a spaghetti. It's sort of like a, a spaghetti Western. It's a mad, 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 mad world all of a sudden. Like, <laughs> yeah, you just totally. have all these people <laughs> that just like start, start building all these characters. Everybody's in it, you know? And then there's another like really bizarre encounter. I don't know if you guys picked up on it in this, in this like uh, scene here at Calvera's camp where Tyree is talking to this like young Mexican boy. And, and again, you know, this sort of like fetishization of the gun, you know, this kid is like, I want a gun. Like, I, 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 I want to have a gun. And Tyree like laughs at him. He's like, come on, kid. Like, the hell are you going to do with a gun? He's like, I could shoot somebody. He's like, come on, wh- who the hell are you going to shoot? And the kid's like, just like stone faced. The man who killed my father. Right. And he's like, whoa, that got <laughs> real for a second. It's like, not, Dude. it's not followed up. And like Tyree yeah. is like, oh shit. You know, like damn, everybody has a sad story. Yeah. There's yeah. a, there's a, mo- oh my God, dude, there's a moment with that kid that uh, like to me also, like, I think it's around the same time, but he's talking to Tyree and he goes talking about the farmer that he like lives with and works for who you assume is his grandfather. And he goes, he's not my grandfather. I just work for him. <laughs> yeah, dude. Like, this kid's such a bummer. Like, you know, this mad, mad, mad world in the Wild West coalesces into this big finale, uh, much like the the other film we discussed. There's a big finale at the, you know, at an abandoned uh, mission. This is at the the abandoned quarry, the the, the <laughs> mine shaft. Um, and this is when the, the question is answered that is teased early in the film of what's going to happen when the two of them reach the border. 
and Tyree makes good on it. They get into a, a bit of a scuffle, the two of them. Yeah, they really draw it out like, are they friends? Are they enemies? And it's like really milked in the last 20 minutes here. Yeah. Because uh, they keep doing that bit, you know, where it's like, is he? No, maybe, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the way it was going all along, you 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 knew. It was never in doubt. No, no. Yeah. No. Yeah. There are yeah. a lot of things that were never in doubt in my mind in this movie, and that's that they were going to get away with all the money, the way they flew over that, you know, that, that chasm, that gorge, you know? Right. It was never in doubt. But I would say there was one thing that, was uh, never in doubt to me. However, as it turns out, uh, it was quite quite a different sort of note than I was uh, expecting, certainly throughout the film. Now, following, of course, you know, in this climactic uh, showdown and another very great bit of, uh, of uh, camera trickery to show Tyree and Pike escaping by by leaping down a waterfall. And, and Unbelievable. The, the shot, out of this world. The shot of Fred Williamson like clearly just sort of like splashing in a little bit of water or something <laughs> like that. Dude. Like, and then the very obvious mannequins that had been like sort of tossed down this hole like head first into like a puddle at some point. Like we've had a lot of good like mannequins falling from the sky uh, yes. the past couple of weeks, which has been nice. I want to yeah. I want to briefly touch on the explosion because they oh, have yeah. all this dynamite and they 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 blow up the mine as you know Lee Van Cleef's newest posse uh, come you know they come charging in and our two dudes are smoking cigars. And then... Pike finally lights up. Yeah, Pike finally lights up because they're BFFs forever. Tyree's not going <laughs> to leave him. And they they blow up so much dynamite that I was in awe. It was literally like Zabriskie Point. There's so sure. many fucking repetitions of that explosion as well because it's like a really big explosion. And then it keeps getting replayed. And the amazing thing about it is, like, that's the end for all those guys who were charging. We get, like, no shots of their bodies. Yeah. We get no shots of the aftermath. We just get all these shots of things blowing up, and then it's just over. Yeah. And I was like, well, that was a big buildup for, I mean, a huge explosion. <laughs> yeah. But, like... They were completely vaporized. They were like, vaporized, <laughs> yeah. Because the film was too cheap to like film any follow-up. So they just like disappeared. Yeah. You know? I also love too that like in that moment when they're like setting the dynamite, and it's clear like the most dynamite you've ever seen in your fucking entire life. And they got these cigars. It's also just there. Yeah, know? it's also just like there, you know. And they they like Tyree like lights the fuse and then screams like, move your ass, we got three seconds. And I'm like, you set a three-second fucking fuse. On the most dino three seconds, you would not have cleared that shit. Like if a no. hundred, if a hundred like Mexican cavalrymen were vaporized, like hundreds of yards away from from the mouth of this this mine shaft. Not I, I if can't. you're diving down a waterfall. Yeah, yeah. And again, a bit of like a possible like topography or geography, like where that fucking waterfall came from. But they dove down a mine shaft and came out of a waterfall. Yeah, on yeah. top of a cliff. Yeah, because I like I yeah I guess the only thing I can imagine is that they were like swimming through a cave system yes. that yes yeah, somehow let even though it looked just like a rather still you know 
pond inside of this cave turned into a really raging waterfall that we are also never given a wide shot of to understand um, how it fits in with all of the space. Yeah, yeah. So the new posse gets completely obliterated. They're 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 friends for life now, and uh, they come out of this waterfall a little bit wet, a little bit beat up, but they've got their lives. The money got away with yeah, cash took. So Jim Kelly got away with the money. So that's good. That's all secure. And Chico, the kid, went with them. And Chico, the very, very yeah. like depressed Mexican kid, went off with them as well. And there they are, like at the mouth now of some sort of like lake or something <laughs> at the at the base of this waterfall. And we think they're in the clear, but here comes Lee Van Cleef, the big duel. You know it. You knew it. It had been building all fucking film, all the the fates. The, the, the backs and forth, you know, all of it. Here they are. This is how most spaghetti westerns end now with the big fateful fucking showdown. It all had to come down to this. Mono a mano. And Lee Van Cleef looks at them and they look at him. And he looks at them and they look at him. And then he turns around and rides off. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, how come you didn't tell me you couldn't swim, huh? I can't do everything perfect, right? Besides, I was just trying to keep my gun dry. Well, you ready to take this long, hard walk? <laughs> Good for you guys. You, you flew down a waterfall. I'm going to go. <laughs> yeah, fuck this, man. Like, he did advise against the frontal assault. That is very true. He did. He did. But, I mean, obviously, like, if you, like, read into it and you try to, like, follow the breadcrumbs, yeah. you know, it goes back to that moment he had with Pike where Pike had him and and let him go and said everybody deserves a second chance because there's, like, the faintest of smiles, the faintest of smirks where he sort of looks at them and, and I guess if I'm trying to read into it, I see him looking there at these two black men in in the, the post-Civil War reconstruction and thinks, boy, they've got a hard time of it. Maybe they've earned this one. I'll let them go. Good for them, you know, and appreciates their willingness to fight and survive for something, something other than what he stands for. Totally. But it was like, honestly, but it was, I would say this, it was just like a very like weird note to end the movie. That like oddly kind of humanistic note, that like ceasefire at the end of this film was one I hadn't really like encountered in, in many spaghetti Westerns, M many Westerns for, for that matter, you know? Sure. Well, I guess on that note, are there any oddball spaghetti Westerns that are some of your favorites, or I guess even if you want to just talk about spaghetti westerns in general that you really like, but in case maybe there is, you know, one that's more off the beaten path um, or unique in a certain way that you really appreciate. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, in general, as a huge spaghetti western fan, like, I, I don't even, like, need to, to waste everyone's time here to, like, point out the obvious ones, you know, Leone, Corbucci, like, they've got many, many masterpieces, and 
And those I think are, are well, well covered. But, but in terms of like looking for something that's a little bit more out there, you know, you want a little bit more of like an advanced class in, in the sort of weird aspects of spaghetti Westerns. Um, I would point people to like the, the one, the big one for me, and I've mentioned it to you both many, many times, uh, and I would I would tell anyone here like go seek this out because it's it's really gonna knock your socks off. Uh, it's from technically the Django series, but it's not a direct sequel. And it's called Django Kill. If you live, shoot. Starring Tomas Milian as quote Django, though he's not the actual Django you think it is. Just again, spaghetti westerns like getting a character that was popular and using that character's name, even though the film isn't like related directly to that series. But it is one of the most surreal spaghetti westerns you will ever see. Uh, I, I believe the whole thing takes place like uh, in like purgatory or something like that. You know, it's, it's kind of like last year at Marion bad meets uh, a, a Django film. It's, it's really quite, quite uh, unique and interesting. And I, Highly, highly recommend that one. Yeah, well, I, I haven't seen that, Andy, so I will, I will definitely check it out. Um, but you know, so before we, before I, you know, spill the beans on what the what the big topic is for for next week, uh, we're gonna do something a little new this week. Um, we got a little treat in our our gauntlet email, so we're gonna open up Marsh's mailbag here. Marsh, why don't you why don't you take us away? Well, this is an email from a few weeks ago. I'll be honest. Uh, I was failing my duties as a mailman, so I let this slip away. But uh, it is our first uh, <laughs> real, real email that we've received after all this time. And me saying it at the end of every, epi every episode, you can email us. <laughs> Someone finally did, and it feels it feels really good. And uh, yeah, it made and, my day. And I want to share that here. It's from Meredith, and she writes, "I really like a fun little coincidence. I'm in grad school, and one of my jobs slash projects on campus is I'm working in the architecture archive on the collection student architecture drawings. So as I was listening to the three of you talk about Archipelago and the house that Jack built, I was in this little basement closet surrounded by dust, archival supplies, and all manner of blueprints. Now, I'm no architect, but working with this collection for the last few months, I have developed an appreciation for the architectural drawing and an absolutely unfounded belief that not only do I know things about architecture, but I could do the job. It was a very thematic day for me, to say the least, and I found it to be a delightful little Tuesday surprise. More on silly little coincidences. I'm in school at U of I, and over the last couple of months, the gauntlet has become my standard Tuesday morning walk to work listening. Occasionally, the timing works out just so that those opening notes of Never Meant start playing in the intro as I am passing by the American football house itself on my walk to campus. Since I'm already getting regional and specific with it, I will ask a regional and specific question as well. I have started a lavish little tradition where I will go to Chicago just to go to a movie. I've been to screenings at Music Box, of course, as well as the Siskel Film Center. Are there other theaters around that I should be checking their calendars as well? And finally, a non-regional question. Where to start with Deleuze? I'm intimidated. 
In closing, The Gauntlet is a very good podcast about movies that I greatly enjoy listening to. Thanks, Meredith. Absolute, yeah, absolute banger of an email, by the way. Yeah. Way to go. And for the rest of you out there, uh, you know, Meredith has set the standard. Yeah. Step up your game. Yeah, you have a lot to live up to. Absolutely. First question, I, I you know, Ryan and Marsh, you two to me are are far more the, I think, seasoned card-carrying cool Chicago cinephile goers, you know, the cinephile, uh, the, the movie goers, you, you two, as long as I've known you and certainly Ryan, before you moved to Seattle, it seems like <laughs> every other day of the week, you guys are going to see something cool somewhere. So, uh, aside from those two places, where would you point, uh, someone to go check out some cool cinema in the theaters of Chicago? Well, I would say if anyone in Chicago is interested in cinema, they should free up their Wednesdays uh, for the rest of their lives um, and the ev- and the occasional Saturday as well. So they could always go to either Northeastern or the Music Box to check out the programming of the Chicago Film Society. can't think of anyone that programs such an eclectic and engaging and unique collections of, of films uh, as the Chicago Film Society. It is a lovingly crafted program, one that's always presented with uh, a remarkably interesting intro that gives you a good sense of the film's history and its value. Everything is presented on film. It's paired with a short film um, and some other oddities along the way. Um, There's nothing I love more about Chicago film culture than the Chicago Film Society. You could also, of course, check out uh, the uh, screenings at the oldest film society in the United States at Doc Films at the University of Chicago. Uh, They usually do celluloid if they can, but it's an all-student programmed series where each day of the week there's a different theme, sometimes, usually on Thursdays, two themes in a double feature, Uh, and they show new releases on on Saturdays. But otherwise, it's, yeah, it's like different... uh, uh, semester-based screening series, uh, usually showing a lot of good shit. Yeah, very cool thematic programming they do. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, and otherwise, I mean, those are the big ones for sure. But yeah, I would also, you know, check out Block Cinema up Hell in Northwestern. Yeah. Their their stuff is a little less frequent, but they really show some some oddities and some oddball stuff. A lot of really interesting experimental work. Um, will be presented at Black yeah, Cinema. and like political shit. Like, I mean, their yeah. yeah, their their programming is like maybe the most adventurous in some ways. I think so. Love it. Um, and uh, as as I guess you know, the self appointed Deleuze expert of the of the of the group, Meredith. Um, you know, obviously for people who are really interested in cinema, there's like Cinema One and Cinema Two, and those are like. Great. Um, I, I've read both of those books probably like three times each and still don't fully understand them. Uh, but that's the joy in, 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 in Deleuze is, is, is trying to understand what the fuck that guy is talking about. So I would say (laughs) if you really want my advice, um, as someone who has suffered for many years trying to decipher, 
uh, his 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 thoughts. Um, I I wouldn't say start with the cinema books. I would actually recommend starting with a book that he wrote, a very short book, relatively speaking, on the philosopher Henry Bergson. So uh, the book's called Bergsonism, and I think it's a really good primer into the way he thinks. It's a it's a very accessible book, um, as far as. Deleuze goes, and I think it will then prime you for his books on cinema because, uh, specifically, like the first book, it's it's so much um, Bergson that I think having a primer from him on Bergson will give you so much more access then to to what he's going to do with Bergson in Cinema One. And then by the time you get to Cinema Two, your head's gonna be spinning. So so I would say that. I would say start start with there. Start start with Bergsonism. But also I would be a bad I would be a very bad Deleuzian if if I said that there was a specific way you should enter <laughs> into Deleuze's thinking. Really it's it's about your journey and what you're going to make of it. A tip I would give you is to to not try to think always about what he means but to try to 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 discover what what it means to you when you read it. So that would be my advice. I always start on the Wikipedia for rhizome, but that's just me personally. You know. <laughs> well, that's been Marsh's mailbag. Yeah, folks. You got a lot to live up to, but we, yeah. we can't wait for more. You yeah. can send us your email. Send us an email. A couple weeks later, you might get a response. That's right. <laughs> no, we'll check it more regularly now. Now we, we have a purpose and a cause. <laughs> yeah, now that we got one. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna really be on that. But no moment. junk, you know. Keep it quality. Keep it clean. <laughs> Thank you, Meredith. Well, it was Andy's topic this week, but next week it is, of course, Ryan's topic. What do you have for us this time? Well, it's been pretty busy over here for me. I've had a lot going on with work and, you know, th- juggling a lot of stuff. And I'm a, playing you know, Elden apart Ring. From f- playing Elden Ring, exactly. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, uh, I like to carve out a lot of time for myself to read. It's important for me. It's part of my daily rituals. And um, I haven't had a chance to really, like, sink my teeth into any any big novels lately, so I've actually gotten into the habit of reading a bit more short stories, so I feel like I'm accomplishing something, at least when I'm taking on a, taking on a book, so I don't feel lost in, in a novel. Um, when, when things are getting really busy, I can feel like, oh, well, there we go. There's a shortcut. Like, I've, I've read one, and uh, I've, I've, like, a task has been completed. And, you know, it just got me started thinking about, you know, I've been reading, like, a lot of Donald Barthelme, some Raymond Carver, and I was having a lot of fun and thinking about, like, you know, I love how short stories and I feel like this is something a lot of filmmakers forget is they're so ripe to be adapted into feature films taking the short story format and extending it over like a 90 minute runtime or even more I mean even think just now there's a drive my car is a three-hour film based off of a Murakami short similar as to burning it was a, an adaptation of, of a short story so I thought next week how about we take a look at some shortcuts bring me films that are feature-length adaptations of short stories. And maybe we'll find the time to take a look at the short stories too, and we can sort of see how those things were expanded and enhanced uh, with the with the feature format. You got it. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies, or you can send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. 
What the hell's this? You're paid. We're gonna sleep here. You gone mad? No, no, no. This very, very dangerous. Already one innocent man died. I go alone. I fight for honor of my family. You just die for nothing. Now that's a very pretty speech, but I'm not letting you go in there alone. Dakota, I said no, and no change mine. Now you listen to me, you hardhead. I might be a thief. I might have spent more time in jail than a retired prison guard. But nobody can accuse me of running out on a friend. Now you don't want me to go with you? I don't give a damn. But you can't stop me from doing what I want. Thank <laughs> you. 